you create your own serendipity to a certain extent. And that's what we're all searching for when we go to take a picture. We don't want it just to be the same picture that we took last time. We want to have that moment hit where our hand shakes a little bit because we know where we've hit something. And in order to get This photography podcast is brought to you by Frames, quarterly printed photography magazine. Here is your today's host, W. Scott Olsen, with another fascinating conversation. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another podcast from Frames Magazine. My name is Scott Olson, and today we are going to have an extraordinary conversation. Today, we're going to be talking about portraits. We're going to be talking about film. We're going to be talking about a career deep into New York and advertising and celebrity and you name it. We're talking with Peter Freed. Peter is a New York-based, he calls himself advertising photographer and commercial director, best known for his character capturing portraits. The work is extraordinary. Peter, how are you doing today? Um, well, thanks so much, Scott. Happy to be here. I am looking at your resume here, and this is impressive. I mean, we're talking Newsweek, Forbes, New York Times Magazine, Esquire, Self. The list goes on and on. You have taught photography at the Pratt Institute. You've had a wonderful book called Prime, Win the Gold Medal from the Society of Independent Publishers. And you have a long career in the film industry as well. I'm excited about this. Let's start just by jumping right in. You have a book that I admire. I that, That's not even close. I this, this is a really, really intriguing project. It's called The Prime Book. And if you're listening, gang, it's theprimebook.org is, is the place to go. Tell me about this project. Tell me how it started. Tell me what its vision is. Let me see. I had seen, I think it was Patrick Demarchier had done a picture of all the top models who were already a little older. I guess they were top models of the 80s um, mm -hmm. and, and earlier. And he had done it for Vogue, I believe. And they were without makeup, without any clothes, actually. Their bodies were kind of uh, mixed together in an interesting composition. And I was intrigued by that. Not the nudity per se, but that there was no makeup, no enhancement, that these were older women. And I came up with the idea to photograph women who I knew. I had grown up with two older sisters. I had raised two daughters. So besides the natural affinity a man would have for a woman, I had, I don't even want to say an understanding of women because mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm going to catch, catch it catch holy hell, but I know what not to say, I guess, but I certainly most of my friend were, friends were women, intrigued certainly by conversations with friends of mine. And I started out just like that with people I knew, women I knew in New York City. I decided to make it uh, no makeup, no semblance of clothes, kind of from the shoulders on up, no, mm -hmm. no jewelry. Yep. And the women would submit essays on life that would go along with the photographs. And at some point I decided for it to be black and white also stripping the color away. So that really became more of the landscape of the face and the essays. And it, it just kind of snowballed. You know, I did, again, I started with some friends. I knew celebrities from my jobs that I had had with the New York times and with USA today, architectural digest some of those I tried to get Her Helen Mirren, but her schedule didn't allow. She, she for me, personified, <laughs> you know, the elegant, beautiful, 
very in your face woman, smart, mm-hmm. lived a life, you know, had a life well lived, so continues to. But I, you know, was a, a forward by Brene Brown, Christy Turlington's in it, Lee Woodruff, uh, Natalie Morales, Danny Shapiro, Susan St. James. So it just kind of snowballed. And I probably photographed 150 women and it got whittled down to about 80. You say in here, I mean, the ages of the women here are 35 to 104. And it's called the prime book, you know, the, the, the prime being not prime lens, but women who are in the prime of their life. Did you decide that? Did they decide that? How did you approach that idea? And, and then I want to talk about the pictures themselves. Oh, thanks. As I said, it snowballed so that I would photograph somebody I knew and they would say, oh, if you think I'm interesting, you should meet my friend who runs the Omega Institute or Brene Brown. I was turned on to Brene Brown by another writer. And um, I just followed up almost on every lead, taking the suggestions to heart. And I was turning down subjects, not really that much. I shouldn't really say that, but I was, I had no shortage. Let's put it that way. And the fingers of people who were coming to me reached out widely. So they were from the arts, they were cooking. They were, it was a woman who had breast cancer and created a company, left Wall Street and created a company to make prosthetic devices for the bathing suits. Mm-hmm. And, and I didn't really see the essays until after I had photographed them. I knew a little bit about their history. And then weeks later, the women would send in their essay and I'd have to pull over the car on the side and read it. And I was really moved by you know, women are storytellers, maybe more so than, than men. And so I had met them, I had photographed them, I got to know them visually, and then to read their essays about life and love and marriage and death and children. And it was just, I could have left out the photos. I really think I could have, but um, I'm a photographer, so that would have been counterproductive. But it got a lot of press. Had the women seen the images at this point? You know, I shoot digitally at that point. I try not to show people the images when I take their picture, but this was such an intimate situation that I did uh, mostly to 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 help their comfort level because a lot of them, you know, were writers or factory workers. I mean, they didn't necessarily they weren't used to sitting in front of the cameras. The other ones, like Christy Turlington, you know, Natalie Morales, obviously had a comfort level with uh, images, but it helped to see. The images and then we could move forward and I didn't shoot for a long time that's not the way I shoot I don't shoot a lot of we always say film like uh, musicians make records but I don't shoot a lot of files <laughs> and I know when I get it and I rather talk to somebody and then capture the moment instead of just blasting away and picking through later which reminds me of a photographer I heard about who would only take portraits when the person started to cry I can't remember their name oh my. but you know, they would talk to them, and they would make them recount something that happened traumatic in their life. And right when that first tear hit, they snapped the picture. And I thought, oh, that's hokey. But I saw the images, and they were amazing. Oh, man. Tell me about the aesthetic vision here and, and how you came upon this. To describe them, these are standard headshots, you know, from the shoulders <laughs> up, black and white, pretty standard lighting. And yet they are remarkable images the the expressions that you that you've captured with these women and the the moods of these images is really really profound so so tell me how you go about getting a black and white headshot 
to be as deep and, and, and as compelling as these images are. Well, I appreciate it. I appreciate hearing that. We all, we all do. Look, I've had a 37-year career. So somewhere along that way, <laughs> <laughs> photographing the people I photograph, you know, from the Dalai Lama to Muhammad Ali to Frank Gehry to Helen Mirren, Martin Scorsese. It's not like the old days, you know, back Irving Penn and Philippe Holtzman, where you get time with the people. So I've kind of learned throughout my career how to maximize the amount of time I have with a person. And that means getting in depth with them. To that end, I tend to do research on somebody if I don't know them. Mm -hmm. um, so that if it's Frank Gehry, I know about his architecture, I can talk. And I'm kind of the type of person that knows a little bit about everything. You know, I was a sailor, I was a commercial fisherman, I taught skiing. It's funny because I talk less about photography and more about the, the interaction with people, but maybe that's what shows through in the pictures. So once I established some sort of connection, albeit, you know, I didn't have a lot of time with these people quickly, I do what photographers do, which is analyze their face. I taught lighting for years at main photographic workshops and Santa Fe workshops. So you kind of light a face so that you're accentuating things that you see that are impactful about their face and kind of avoiding things that would detract from the power. That's why I may cut off a forehead on somebody or notice that if I walk around, I'll always set up the lighting and then walk around the subject, not to make them uncomfortable, but because often the classic lighting we set up isn't going to be the answer every time. Sometimes backlighting is the way to go on a certain face. So you're analyzing, you know, a, a long nose, a big forehead, the eyes, are they intense? Are they deep set? Can you get in there with the light without showing the hand of the photographer, the lighting, you know, make it too hokey. I always try to, I aspire to show as natural a lighting as I can, but still have it be impactful. I, I want to go back to something you just said that's intriguing, that without showing the hand of the photographer, what do you mean? I, I kind of cut my teeth during a time when, like Annie Leibovitz, you know, would, where clearly it wasn't just daylight that was going on. You know, we'd, we would collectively have a big old six foot wide octobank out at sunset <laughs> <laughs> behind somebody <laughs> that could be powered up from a, you know, 2000 watt generator and put a orange gel or a, or a uh, what was the other one we all used to use, straw gel on it to mimic the sunset behind them in the real world, that wouldn't be happening. The sun's setting behind them, yet you mimic that same light and you push it forward into them and you get that balance. So that's a technique. And for me, it works and it worked during that time, but it's heavy handed, let's say, you know, mm -hmm. like you're fooling the eye of the viewer in a pleasing way, but it's not necessarily natural. And as I progressed away from that type of, Lighting Annie wasn't the only one doing it. Mark Seliger is another example of somebody that would use that warm light. We're all minimized now because digital has such a high latitude for low light and everything right. else. Even Annie and her work, she uses very minimal light and usually the assistants hooked up to it with the battery power. But the point is that just like in a movie, I moved to video and film like uh, 10 years ago and the lighting gets more critical there. And 
and the mood can be totally altered by the lighting. You know, if you're out there and it's a dismal situation in the movie, it could be blue cold light or it could be warm light if it's a tender moment. So that kind of subtlety in photography is still there. So if you see the hand or the heavy handedness of the light, it's going to detract from the person in my eyes. So there's that perfect balance between lighting them well, but not over lighting them. Do you think we've become more aware of the artificiality of it? Do you think being heavy handed is, is more noticed these days? It's a good question, actually. Like when I'm watching a movie with a friend of mine and, and I said, oh, my God, do you see that cutaway and what fantastic backlight? And this, they're like, you're seeing a whole different movie than I am, mm-hmm. you know, because as a photographer, I can even watch a bad movie if it's filmed well and if the lighting is good. So your question was, if I remember correctly, because once I start talking, I forget all about everything. <laughs> are, are we are we more sophisticated viewers? I mean, does, does yes. the hand of does the yeah. hand of the artist speak louder now than it ever did before? It's a good question. It's yes, yes, and no. We've been so bombed with so many images everywhere we turn. There's images or imagery, you know, and mostly moving imagery now, even. I can tell when a still photographer is moved to video by the video because it, the composition is so perfect, you know, which it, it would tend to have to be in still photography where you can't move around. So the composition, even if it's where you place the ear or eyebrow or long lens, short lens, I think people are so inundated with the visual that they're sensitized and desensitized at the same mm-hmm. time. As I said, if I'm watching a movie with somebody and they're just following the plot and not really looking at the imagery, but it obviously influences them. You know, the music gets haunty, Mm -hmm. so you know something's going to happen. I notice all that just because as a photographer, I'm an observer. That's why I love living and love living in New York, because it's just as soon as you walk out into the street, it's a cacophony of just scenes over and over again and you catch these snippets of conversations and the visuals and the light shining off hitting the buildings and shining it's just it's almost overkill and and for somebody who makes their living in the visual arts you can't help but notice it i'm amazed when people don't notice it but but then again i can't read music you know some people can read it and, <laughs> and have no problem i play by ear so as i said we're sensitized and desensitized that you can watch a movie with so many cuts or see an image with such brutality to it like uh, james knockway you know and his and his beautiful shots of war <laughs> i mean there's beauty in them and there's horror in them at the same time but are they magnificent? Yeah, they are. You know, he he opened and closed that door just like Ansel Adams shooting in Yosemite. You make a couple of points that I, w- I want to follow up on. First of all, you know, being inspired by the, by the street when you walk out in New York. I don't know why, but a scene from the Gregory Hines movie Tap came to me. You know, where he's he's looking at the world as a tap dancer. There's a scene where he takes the students out on the street and he has them listen to New York, <laughs> um, not look at, but just listen to it and, and translate that into rhythms for dancing. I think as a photographer, you walk out on the street and you look at it and you look at the light and, and you use that as a way to, to compose. We're in complicated times. People now are selling these packages where you can replace entire skies and they're not doing it apologetically. They're, they're saying, well, look at this. You can com- completely fabricate 
you know, for 1995, you, you, you can change everything. And I'm thinking, where, you know, where goes the art then? Where goes the, the value of composition trying to elicit some truth there? It's an interesting point, and I'm kind of, I come from a place that most people don't think I would come from. I remember when they first interviewed me for one of the photo magazines about, you know, digital, like, oh my God, you know, <laughs> we're going to digital. There'll be no more Triax, there'll be no more Kodachrome, there'll be no more this and that. We're doomed, you know. The, nah, you'll get a digital camera. And I remember the first time I got one, it was for one of the Day in the Life books that I was photographing on, mm-hmm. the Day in the Life of America or China, I can't remember which. And I, I thought, you know, there's a dial to make it darker, there's a dial to make it lighter. That's oversimplifying, but it, it's just a tool. It's just a tool. And I do believe, you know, I'm not into heavy Photoshop, but if the sky is going to be more impactful, if you go in after and do a little post on it, and that's what you're trying to elicit from the viewer, you know, that feeling, if you're going after that feeling, then do it. You know what I mean? I'm not a purist in that way yet. I do shoot with a four by five Sinar, but I have a digital back for it only because I like that instant feedback. And, you know, as an artist, when I was, I wasn't a very good painter, I wasn't a very good illustrator, but I was a pretty decent sculptor because I was good at cutting away and finding the image in there. So a composite decoupage of imagery is not the worst thing. Now, that doesn't mean you have to have semi-naked women with wings flying over (laughs) planets. I mean, obviously, the pendulum can swing quite Uh far one way. But let's say you want to make the sky a little darker. Let's say somebody's eyes are inset and you can't quite see to their soul, as it were. I will take a little highlight and put it in their eyes very subtly. I'll retouch, not in the prime book, not in a retouch, but in, in normal portraiture, I'll retouch a scar if I don't think it's germane or, or mm-hmm. lighten uh, or take out a, a red vein in the eye. I'll never take out the wrinkles entirely, but I'll just take the shadows out from maybe a dramatic lighting situation, like a grid spot or something that I use. So they're all tools, you know, all the way to the end of the image. And just like a painter, sometimes you can go too far and like overpaint something. A photographer can do that too. Absolutely. Want to switch gears a little bit here and, and, for those of you that are listening, we're, we're going to a different website now. This is peterfreed.com, P-E-T-E-R-F-R-E-E-D.com, where there are some beautiful portfolios and projects. The first one you've got on the website there is called Pairs, and, and it is a collection of paired images. Tell me about the idea here. What's, what's going on? I'd like to say there's a tremendous amount of forethought to it. But the fact, <laughs> the fact is that the website, which I chose years ago, I mean, I don't even want to tell you how many years ago, the format was, was, very, was almost like film 13 by nine. It's a little shorter. I was shooting primarily a square Hasselblad format. Mm-hmm. So I didn't want to crop the images as a, as a long horizontal. So I decided to put two of them together. And if I'm going to put two of them together, Just like when you're creating a photo book and you're going to have two pictures on a page, I always try to have a little sense of humor or a little input into why I'm choosing the images. So I did pay attention to, there's one where I have, I had photographed young farmers. Uh, One of them is actually my daughter out in Colorado. So she had a chicken in her hand. Another young lady had a goat next to her. Obviously those play off 
each other. And there were some others that were juxtapositions of a beautiful blonde model next to a kind of garish man, just kind of playing off the opposition of that. Uh, one of them, I have Helen, Helen Mirren and her Mardi Gras dress. She has a place down in New Orleans next to Jean-Claude Van Damme on the 63rd floor of the um, Sony building. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me, tell me the story of that shot. We were talking mm-hmm. earlier that that, that something yeah. extraordinary happened here. You know, for a long time I couldn't talk about it because you're not really allowed on the 63rd floor of the Sony Building. For those of you that don't know, it's a Chippendale type cutout at the very top, and I knew I was going to be photographing Jean Claude for Newsweek or maybe uh, USA Today. So I wanted an area where. There was a bunch of steam pipes and everything else to play off his muscularity and his machismo. And they said, well, up near the roof, we have this boiler room and you can go up there. And I had an Irish assistant at the time who back in Ireland was a locksmith. Um, so yeah, you can see, you can see where this is going. So as soon as the building manager left me, I looked at him, he looked at me, we knew exactly what we were doing. He picked the lock to the roof. I ran up there and I snapped off with the Hasselblad one, two, three, four, five frames before the building manager came out and says, what the hell are you doing up here? You know, I was literally, my butt was hanging over the back of this there was no railing or anything and oh, he was geez. in the circle i got away with it 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 was it ran on the cover of usa today for some movie he was doing and the helen mirren mm-hmm. she's just lovely she we were down in new orleans that was for architectural digest we were doing a cover shot with her and her husband who's a well-known uh, film mm-hmm. produced director So I said, well, you know, we had her in traditional clothes and she has a lovely home. And I said, well, do you celebrate, you know, Mardi Gras? And she says, oh, yeah. And I said, well, what are you wearing? She says, I have this great dress. And she ran upstairs and got her red Mardi Gras dress and we shot her on her bed. You know, it just ended up being the the feature shot. But she's she's amazing. I mean, she's a great actress, great person, very relaxed. I was going to say, my my heart hopes that, that, that she's wonderful to work with. And, you know, I'm looking at these two shots now on the website and, and the fact that both of them are the result of serendipity and, and you know, a willingness to take a little bit of a risk is, is remarkable. But you, you decided to put those two together. I mean, I, mean that, I mean, not only did you take the images, you decided on the pairings. You've, you've got a really masculine one. You've got a really feminine one. You've got you know, warm tones and cool tones here. How did you go about deciding on the pairings other than sort of thematic similarities? You, you talked about the, the two women with the farm animals. Obviously, you've got a couple of the black and whites from the Prime book. Uh, how did you go about deciding on the others? Again, I'd like to say it was, you know, I worked so hard on it and really applied, but I didn't. I just, uh, they looked good together. Obviously, I'm influenced by some of the graphicness uh, in terms of the angles of the Jean Claude. Mm-hmm. shot as opposed to the softer tones and imagery in the uh, Helen Mirren shot. But you did bring, if I can reel back a little bit, you talk about the serendipity of a shoot. And I think that's important if we're talking to other photographers. You create your own serendipity to a certain extent. And that's what we're all searching for when we go to take a picture. We don't want it just to be the same picture that we took last time. We want to have that moment hit where our hand shakes a little bit because we know where we've hit something. And in order to get there, we do have to take some chances. And often with these celebrities, 
you don't have a lot of time. You have editors on your back. You know, it's like when they flew me out to shoot Elton John for the cover of Architectural Digest. This was a big shoot, and I knew the pressure. If I if I sir came to the pressure and just did a safe shot, I wouldn't be happy, and they might be happy, but not as happy as they would be if I caught the truck taking off the two pink, pink Lamborghinis that he and his <laughs> husband had just delivered and taking a shot mm-hmm. there and asking him if we could do that and him hawing and I don't know, it doesn't, oh, come on, you know, you use your personality to get that. You push just a little farther to see if you can make something happen. happen. It's not all planned. There is some serendipitous moments, but you have to be out of your comfort zone in order to get close to those. And when you do, I'm looking down at the images now, and there was one of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and I was shooting her for the cover of Columbia University magazine. And, you know, I was amazingly honored to spend time with her. I don't care what your politics are. This is an amazing woman. And yeah, I was taking the shots. I knew the client would, who was literally leaning over my shoulder, you know, as she, cause she, these are important. It's an important shot. You don't have a lot of time with her, but I did notice in her purse was the declaration of independence dog-eared with a bunch of different colored markers in there. And I asked her, if she would take it out and flip through it. And at that moment, I took a shot of her aged hands flipping through and kind of, oh, I love this part. And she would read it. It was an opportunity that I could have let slip. But I think the stronger shot isn't necessarily a portrait of her, but her hands flipping through the, uh, oh, I'm sorry, the Constitution of the United States, not the Declaration of Independence. Can tell I didn't do very good in uh, social studies. <laughs> I love listening to you describe these things because you know, we were talking earlier about the, the the Prime book, and so many of those images you seem to have caught somebody mid thought, which makes the image really compelling. And you're talking here about having a sensibility for the serendipitous. How much of good photography do you think is this? benefit of experience and this willingness to to push a little bit farther versus the technical stuff? I mean, is is photography really about taking a risk? Good questions. Let me say it this way. When you first start out in photography, you're an empty slate. You may not even understand the relationship between f-stop, shutter speed, and ISO. But somehow the pictures you take back then are some of the best you've ever taken. So is that serendipity? No, it's maybe a combination of mistakes you made, opportunities you saw visually, and let's face it, a very lack of pressure on what you're shooting. You know, your your livelihood, your two children's food and everything else doesn't depend on it. So you have a certain laissez-faire about the imagery and maybe it's cleaner and purer than then the next step is you start to get to know your camera and you get kind of bogged down in the minutia and the mechanics when i say you i'm just really talking about my historical evolution as a right, photographer right. but i but i don't think it's it's unique other photographer friends i have went through that also so you've lost at that next stage You've gotten so wrapped up in the technical side. No, I need this light, and I got to get an octobank, and I need a grid spot, and I got to have barn doors, and I got to have. And now you've <laughs> you've got so much going on, and there are a lot of photographers that still to this day overlight something. I'm not going to drop his name, 
and you lose sight of what you're photographing, whether it's a person. I mean, I'm a portraitist, but I can also shoot landscapes, but I'd rather there be a person in there, even if they're small and on the top of the hill. So then you get through that. Then I think if you keep transitioning and trying to improve, just like skiing, I was a ski instructor for years. Yeah, you got to know how to edge. You got to know how to angulate. You got to know how to reach down the hill and you got to know how to roll your knees into the new turn and not over lean. So once you get beyond all the mechanics, the technical part, then you really start enjoying yourself or in the parallel to photography, you really start creating images that are not a victim of the mechanics or of the minutia and everything wrapped around it. Then you're just flying over the ground on slippery things and becoming one with it without getting too philosophical. With photography, it's the same thing. Once you let go of all the encumbrances of making a good picture, now you can spend time getting closer to your your subject i have paul newman on the pairs i'm just looking as as we go through some of these images i don't look at for years and he had a house on fifth avenue over by central park and i said well can we go across the street and shoot on a bench and he said sure but he he looked uncharacteristically nervous especially considering the conversation we had about race cars in his house i had studied up as I said. So as we're sitting there and I'm shooting him, he kept looking around, looking around. I said, wow, he's really distracted. I'm going to lose the shot. And I said, well, Mr. Newman, you know, what's, what's the matter? And just then one of those tour buses, buses came by on Uh-oh. Fifth Avenue and they're going, Paul Newman, he said. And then he looked at me and he, he called me in a little close and he said, listen, it wasn't that long ago that John Lennon got shot right on the other side of this park. And I haven't forgotten that. And I said, I'm so sorry. You know, it's very insensitive of me. He said, listen, I'm a pro just finish off here and then we'll do some shots back in the apartment. And, you know, that was a faux pas on my side, but my sensitivity to his apprehension made for a good shot inside. It's also a good shot in the, in the, on the park bench, but you can see that nervousness in his, Mm -hmm. in his eyes. So serendipity, yes. Flexibility maybe is a better word and seeing opportunity and making a move towards opportunity and knowing just how far to push your subject. If I go down a little farther, I see the shot of Martin Scorsese. I went into his office. It was an important shoot. I wanted, I had it all set up to shoot in this, in the storage room I found that had all the old reels of his award-winning movies, just all hanging all over the place. And I lit it perfectly. And I was going to have him sitting on a stool there right before he got there. One of his personal assistants says, Oh no, 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 you can't shoot here. You know, he's so pissed off at me that I haven't cleaned up this you know, this storage locker. And when I tell you the movies in there were like, you know, what's that one with De Niro that was a taxi driver. My point is that I had to, within five minutes of him coming up, have my assistant grab one of the lights with the cord, run to his screening room in his office, plug the light in, blast it from behind as if you know, it was the projector, sit him in a seat, and then with my right hand, hold up a light on him and take a picture with my left hand on my Hasselblad. I maybe got five shots before my arm went numb. So (laughs) again, serendipity or just flexibility? I think that that's a fantastic story. 
Tell me, tell me about the pre-planning for a minute, though, because I mean, I'm looking at at the portfolio here, and let's just pick, you know, like Liza Minnelli here. Gee, nobody's ever taken a picture of Liza Minnelli before, you know. So you get the assignment. How how do you imagine it before you show up? Because mm-hmm. I know you're thinking, question. okay, what what am I going to say here? How's it going to be? Not just another picture. How do you pre-plan for a portrait, especially when the the person you're taking a picture of is frequently in front of the camera? Yeah, it's, again, a good question. And I might add, there's a lot of people that aren't used to get, getting their picture taken. I did Fortune 500 uh, annual reports for years, and these guys do not want their picture taken, but they have to have it on the annual report. And you have the opposite problem. Like they don't, even Warren Buffett, I mean, he had dandruff, sorry, Warren, and his teeth <laughs> were terrible. And he didn't care because that's the last thing he's thinking about. So I have right. to you know, make him comfortable taking a picture. Just the same way I have to make Liza. Now, Liza, like her m- mother, is a s- sad character. I, they, you know, they both had tough lives and, mm-hmm. and they're very emotional characters. So I didn't pre-plan that that much. I was going to meet her. She was coming out with some new album or something, so they wanted a photo for it, but they also wanted some uh, supplementary press. And it's interesting you picked that one because I didn't have a concept. I just wanted to get to know her. You know, I was in a hotel room, which can be horrible. It can look just like it is a hotel room. But I had brought some flowers and put them behind her and done a shallow depth of field. And then just by talking to her, telling her what what an admirer I was of her mom and how seminal the movie um, had been for me, The Wizard of Oz, and hadn't even lifted my camera and the time was running out. And I think I snapped very few pictures, but the one I got um, showed that little bit of pain, you know, like the Jackson Brown song. I had caught that look in her eye, that frightened look in her eye. So other shots like the Giselle Bunchen one, which is next to it on the website, she was in a movie called Taxi, I think, or something. And it was a comedy, and I wanted to get a taxi cab, and her laying on a taxi cab, all beautiful and this and that. And so I had blocked off the street, and you know, I knew one of the doormen at a hotel, and he, I'd slipped him a little bit. That's how I used to take pictures back in the eighties in New York. Um, and supplemental costs. Yeah, you carry around. Well, also before we had cell phones, and I was with the New York Times, I used to have to jingle around with a pocket full of quarters because I'd get a beeper five five six one zero eight one from the desk at the New York Times, right. and. I would go up and put coins in the phone to call in to get my assignment. Now I had in the other pocket five and $10 bills because if somebody was using the phone, I would offer them $5 and then $10 to please get off the phone so I could call the front desk and go down and cover the Bernie Getz trial or whatever they were sending me on. But so there is pre-planning usually. Again, I do research on each person so that I'm taking a picture that kind of makes sense. I'm not putting them in a picture I'm creating. I'm I'm hopefully alluding to something in their lives that makes sense. An architect, Frank Gary at his building or or involved in some sort of curved representation mm-hmm. of his type of architecture. I obviously or a chef, you know, I I go into the kitchen. I will go the day before on my own dime and just uh, scope it out, even though I was, for whatever New York magazine, I was only getting a couple hundred bucks for an assignment. Uh, You know, I wanted the pictures to be good to enhance my portfolio. And just because 
that's the world I want to live in. You know, I want everybody to do their absolute best. So I would go in and scope it out. Interesting distinction there between not putting them in a picture you're creating, but trying to, you know, elicit something from their lives into a picture that you're creating. <laughs> that, that, yeah. that, you know, we are uncoverers in, in, in many, many ways. We, we can talk for another hundred hours, but I want to <laughs> turn now to the other part of your career going on at the moment, and that's the, the work in film. This is a good link off your website to what you call other hand films. Tell me about that transition. And, and I mean, there's, there's an awful lot of these films are testimonials that they, they come right out of your experience, I think, with, you know, portraiture. But you've got some great, great short films here. Yeah, thanks. Well, they're really, they're really hired uh, jobs and they're really more commercials. I do tend to do commercials in the medical field for uh, longevity, which is lung cancer awareness or uh, teenage suicide or I don't know how I fell into that really, but I don't want to just sell toilet paper, although I'd be happy with the the money. Maybe I wouldn't be so happy, you know, in my, in my life. So a lot of my commercials I make tend to be of import. So, you know, everything's been a transition. I started out as a newspaper photographer. Then I went to magazines, started shooting color. Then I went to annual reports. Then I went to corporate advertising. Then I went to advertising. And, and the, the skipping across the rocks, as it were, was, was mostly because of the appetite of the consumer the newspapers were not selling the way they used to. Magazines were dwindling and your reports slowed down. So I was always kind of jumping to the next stone before I slipped and fell in the river. So um, <laughs> even though we're, we're talking as photographers and most of the viewers or listeners will be photographers, I don't think going into film detracted from my photography nor did I do it out of boredom. I'm still interested in photography, but let's face it, 30 years of taking pictures, the challenges that come about through switching to video were exciting. <laughs> Just when cameras are getting smaller, I go up to a bigger camera. You know, I go from a, a Leica to a, a, a Sony 55, you know, and, and my back has paid the price. But look, uh, what do they say? Uh, one minute of videos were 30,000 words. The influence that we're all uh, under, uh, and when a news story happens, we don't wait for Newsweek to come out and then read about it. We go to our phone, we go to the, you know, the TV, like the trial that's going on now, and we see immediately what's happening. That immediacy and also the challenge is what drove me to video. And it wasn't an easy transition any more than going from newspapers to magazines or magazines to advertising. But it was one that I felt I had to do for economic reasons, because my kids both, despite them being of age now, wanted new cars. And, <laughs> um, and I wanted to know. And you're a good you know, dad. Okay. <laughs> and I'm trying. I'm trying. Yep. And, you know, retirement, I'm sure I'll retire sometime. I don't know when. Yeah. I probably won't retire. But the point is, I saw the writing on the wall. I still, uh, probably 30% of my clients are still uh, hiring me for my still photography, but 70% or so uh, is, is video. And 
let's face it, it doesn't hurt that the same person that's shooting your commercial video can do the stills for the print ad. Right. Um, right. And that's the niche that I was looking to fill. Oh, you do still photography? I always laugh when I hear somebody says that because I don't really tell my video clients. I don't lead them to my still photography site. Um, not for any, I'm not hiding anything. It's just, I want to, I want to present something that they're looking for. Then when I do present it, they go, Oh, well, why are we hiring a photographer to do, you know, the stills? There we go. I hope I'm not pissing off any advertising (laughs) still photographers, but you know, you called these commercials earlier, and, and I want to make sure everybody knows these are not 60-second things you see in the middle of, of a sitcom. Th- th- these are remarkable short films. And yes, a number of them are medical, but I got to tell you, I watched the music ones. Th- those are the ones that, that really drew me in. I had never heard of Drew Bordeaux before, um, probably oh, he's myself. so great. Yeah. But I'm looking at that one, and I'm thinking every skill you ever learned as a still photographer comes into the art direction there. I'm, I'm looking at Green Dolphin Street, a good old jazz classic. Enjoyed that one a lot. You know, th- th- these these are video portraits. This is really what they are. And in a, in a couple times, you know, they are promoting an idea or a company or a service. But I got, I got one last question for you, which really sort of is going to encompass stills as well as uh, magazines and newspapers, magazines, whatever, uh, and video. And that's, okay, you are primarily a portrait photographer here comes you know, the un- unanswerable question what what makes a good portrait yeah what makes a good portrait well i guess you could use the litmus test of when you post it on instagram or something how many likes you get <laughs> and i'm always amazed like you know I'll, I'll bleed on taking one picture and just think it's the just this is it this is my career pinnacle a shot and I'll get like three likes. No. Mm-hmm. Um, and another one that I, that just was a sleeper. I'm, and I don't profess to be a good editor. I'm a terrible editor of my own stuff. My assistants would often go through my stuff and say, Peter, you know, what? I don't understand. Why isn't this shot in there? Oh, you think that's better? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> don't, don't you see it? And I say, no, nah, I, I don't really, because I'm influenced during the shot by the smell and the sound and what the person's saying and where I am at the time. And it's um, it makes for a confusing job as an editor. What makes a good portrait? I, I, I guess I get a certain amount of feedback from the person I'm photographing, and I do get this a lot, and I'm, ha- I'm not patting myself on the back, not that I have fear of doing that. But I have a lot of people say to me, before I take the picture, oh, I've had my picture taken and it's just, it never comes out as terrible. And I say, oh, 30 years of portrait photography. I've never heard that. I kind of joke. <laughs> and then afterwards for them to say, oh my God, this is the best picture, you know, ever taken. Why is that? It's not because I'm so gifted. It's because I'm skilled. You know, I, I see even the way they're pursing their mouth in nervousness that if they could just relax their jaw or separate their lips, that they might be more of themselves. And where does that come from? Well, yes, experience, but also being in the moment when you're taking the picture, you know, feeling the tension that they have by closing their lips tightly like that and relaxing their jaw. And when I bring it up in a way, like I don't say, and I've heard photographers say this, you know, open your jaw or lean your head this way. No, 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 no. Oh, why don't you try one where you're just letting your lips part? Oh, that's good. And, and just tilt your head this way. 
people want to be directed. People want to feel like you're in charge without being pushy or that you know what you're doing. And sometimes they want to come up with the idea themselves and then for you to just massage it a little bit. So, you know, a good portrait is one when you, well, it used to be when you go and go get your chromes and you lay them out on the light box at Dugal, you see it. And you kind of knew it was happening when you took it because, once again, your hand shook just a little bit and you calmed yourself down. And sure enough, that moment when Jean-Claude put his hands on his hips and the composition worked right or when Warren Buffett lifted that McDonald's burger to his to his mouth, that, that moment was there. You were skilled enough to see it and competent enough to take it at that moment. I'm going to let it end right there. That's brilliant. That That is, thank you, sir. This has been a lovely conversation. Well, for me too. It's always nice to talk about my favorite subject myself. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I never talk about myself. So it's it's kind of nice to, to rolf it out, you know? There we go. Thank you, sir. Frames. Because excellent photography belongs on paper. Visit us at www.readframes.com.